Esther 2.19. Uh, while you're turning, you may have noticed some artwork around uh, the room. The project was made by our kiddos in the lower level to celebrate the halfway point uh, of our two-year bold initiative. This was, uh, as I understand, Tammy Kruger's idea, and she chose the theme of superheroes to get our kids to consider what it means to be bold. And they came up with a litany of adjectives. Should you care to walk around and, and read what they came up with? Um, not only describing superheroes, but in turn, what makes us bold followers of Jesus Christ. And you can learn about how all of that ties in together at tonight's Still Bold event at 6.30 p.m. in this room. I am so stinking excited for this. I can't stand it. And if, you're, uh, if you've been here for, for 10, actually can't be here for 10 years. We're not that old. We're nine years old. So if you've been here that long, we'd love for you to come to that tonight. If you're brand stinking new, we're all new compared to a lot of churches around here that are hundreds of years old, uh, we'd love for you to come tonight, 6.30 p.m. We're going to have charcuterie, okay? It's tough to define, I know, but it has something to do with ham and crackers and cheeses and all gourmet, you know, uh, approach and whatever. So it's going to be amazing is the short version. And so we'd hope that you come tonight, that you hear what God is doing in terms of new leaders, new churches, and a new building through the Mill Church. Updates in all three categories tonight, 6.30 p.m. We'd love to have you uh, join us. And you can tell by the proliferation of this artwork um, that we make a lot of babies at the Mill Church, apparently, or I suppose... Appropriately, I should have said, we value children. We value children. So we're going to talk about, um, over the next two times in the book of Esther, sins and mistakes and tragedies. Um, they complicate our lives. I just saw Macy. Macy, you're playing volleyball too, aren't you? No? Oh, forgive me. I thought you thought you did. So um, sin. Uh, tragedies, mistakes, they, they, they get sticky, okay? And, and bad decisions and, and tremendous pain. And this is all stuff that the Apostle Paul wrote about when he said, um, who can know the mind of who? Do you remember? Of the, of the Lord, of God. Who can know the mind of God? And I think what he meant when he said that was, we will never have clarity on certain things that happen to us in this life. I just think that is, a, that is a truth that brings the people of God much peace if they accept it at face value. We're never going to know why certain things uh, happen. Consequently, or I should say not consequently, uh, but on the opposite end of things, we can have certainty. We can have absolutely certainty that God is good, for example, that he loves us, that he cares about people, that he is not distant but close. Um, so all these, all these uh, things are, are taking place, and we're going to read about them in the book of Esther. Would um, Logan, you do me a big favor and kindly prop open that door, and let's get some air circulating in here. And Dennis, maybe you can in the back too. If it gets too cold, Logan, and you can't bear it anymore, then you, you turn that to the right hard and you'll get her to go. Sorry, we set it at 67 this morning, but the sun is uh, killing me here, and I assume it's a little warm for you too. 
All right. So, here we go. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. As the virgins were gathered the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. I would love to go into uh, the background of, of this, uh, but, but I think I'm going to skip it this morning. I know that's going to leave some who have missed out of the loop, but I'm going to go on and skip the background because it's quite lengthy. There is a competition, I will say this, for a new queen, okay? And the former queen, Vashti, has been kicked out by her husband, who's King Xerxes, a historical, actual, factual figure, and uh, Esther has stepped into this position. Uh, we called it the Bachelor Persia Edition. Basically, she and a number of other virgin, virgins were um, paraded uh, to the king over a series of days or nights, and he chose Esther. Okay, So Mordecai, her first cousin, is this morning's text walking or sitting rather at the gate. Uh, this is the spot, the gate, where politics are uh, discussed, where business is transacted. We get every indication that he, in all likelihood, holds some kind of uh, government office, public office. We'll keep reading verse 20. Esther had not made known to her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him, okay? So at this point, nobody knows that she's what? That she's Jewish. She's living in a pagan land in the Persian Empire. Mordecai had told her, don't let anybody know that you belong to the God of the Bible. Whatever you do, don't fill that out on your Facebook profile. Don't post that to Instagram. Don't tweet it. Just keep it to yourself. Keep your heritage quiet. How many of you know there are other Christians in our time who can be at the oppo end of the spectrum and tell you everything about Jesus the moment that they meet you for the first time? Just imagine uh, Mark Snyder uh, goes to interview a job and they say, well, tell me about yourself, Mark. You know, he probably won't have another job because he's uh, later in life, almost to retirement age. But let's say for the fun of it that he gets bored. So he's looking for work. And tell me about yourself, Mr. Snyder. And Mark says, well, I love Jesus. I love Jesus with all my heart. Every day I pray to God. Every day I wake up and sing to Jesus while I'm in the shower. When I come out of the shower, wait, do you know Jesus? Because you need to know Jesus. In fact, I think that's why I'm here. I'm here to tell you about, you know, and so we, we, sometimes see people who make that their lead, their lead in. What I'm not saying is that we need to start with our Christian t-shirt and our gimmicks and um, our faith outright and expressively right away. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, however is if you spend your whole life concealing your relationship with God because you don't want to suffer publicly, you're doing exactly what Mordecai 
is guilty of here. You don't want to be ridiculed. You don't want to be disliked. You want to be risk-averse. You don't want to worship Jesus Christ, but rather your own comfort and complacency as God. That is not who we ought to be as Christ followers. Amen. It's possible that that's what's going on here. It's a decision of comfort. If everybody knows what we believe, Esther... Some will not like us. It could absolutely hurt our upward mobility. Therefore, it's on the DL. Hush, hush. And my concern is that some of us have been taught the same thing. Is it or is it not a common phrase that maybe you've heard from an older generation? Religion is a private matter, not a public matter. People say that. People believe that. What a tragic interpretation of the gospel. You're to own it, but not share it, in other words. And I'd like to just set the record straight, if, if I might do that, and say that view is nothing more than a commonly held misconception. It caters to our agreeableness as people, not to us being saved by the creator of this universe. Because if you get saved from yourself, and if you get saved from your sin, you tell people about it. It's a value of yours. It's important to you. I love the verses in Romans chapter 10. I believe it's 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Which is what the bold initiative is all about. It's about sending people out. You're going to meet a couple tonight who feels that they're being called to be sent out as followers of Christ, doing the work of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If we conceal our relationship with Jesus, we are being unfaithful to Jesus. Our income ought not to outshine Christ. Our family, our social network, our friendships ought not to outshine Jesus. They ought not to be these altars that we conveniently sacrifice Christ on. Might we say practically, if you don't want to be baptized because it's a public thing, you are not being obedient to Jesus. If you don't want to receive communion because that's a public thing, you aren't being obedient to Jesus. If you're not speaking up at work when people say, the church in a pejorative or negative way, or they say dumb Christians or dumb evangelicals, you're putting your own comfort over Christ. 
Verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, so he's transacting business, two guys we met previously in the book are next, Bigfin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs. As we've explained in the last couple weeks, a eunuch, by definition, is someone who used to be happy, okay? That's who a eunuch is. The king had a huge problem on his hands when he wanted to assemble a harem of women. He knew that if he allowed men to work in their presence, many of those women that he neglected himself, he never spoke to himself, that men who were working for him would pursue them and that they would in turn fall in love. And so when he hired men to facilitate his harem, he would castrate them. Everybody said, oh, no. And history records that Xerxes had 500 men a year to work as eunuchs. 500 a year. And here are two of them mentioned by name. They're on secret service detail. What we'll discover is that these guys are going to try and kill Xerxes. And rightly so, we might say, because he made them eunuchs, right? We have to connect the dots, but we don't know their motive in this case. They're out to get him. And so two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry, sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, who is Xerxes by his Greek name. And of course, betrayal was a significant part of the ancient world. Who was it in the ancient world who would betray the king? Was it those loyal subjects from the lower class? Absolutely not. It was, it was those who were in his, his inner circle. It was his confidants. That's who would betray a king in this time period. And, and one of the recurring themes of the book of Esther is that while the times change, the people do not. So let's make this practical in the current day. It's another example of, of that truth. If you're in business, if you're in ministry, if you're in government, who is most likely to betray you? It's those who are closest to you. They get jealous of success. They get to second-guessing your decisions. They want to share, maybe, in what they presume to be your glory, and they can even manipulate other people to follow along in their game. And even in some cases, there's cash payouts. So here are some things that the leaders in this room, if that's you, ought to keep in mind. First, be careful, be careful, at who you let close to you. Be wise. Second, if you're second in charge, if you're second fiddle, if you're underneath someone who is by position superior, who is it that promotes us? It's God. It's God. In his timing, in his method, And so those who are second or third or fourth have to be very careful not to let their own motives and their own time frames creep in to God's plan and his purpose. Amen?
Patience is a virtue. Where are we at in the storyline? Well, we have an assassination plot. Xerxes' life is now in danger. Um, this would be a lead story, by the way, in every major news outlet today. We have an international leader, and we have people who are trying to assassinate him. That's a big deal. Verse 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. Why do we find it likely that Mordecai is in public office? Why would he have this knowledge? He's got some knowledge that other people don't have. You don't get that when you're at the, uh, in the lower uh, segments of, of society. He, in relationship with someone else in authority, discovers the plot, or rather it's revealed to him. Um, and how many of us would, knowing Xerxes is a Xerxes, we've said before, would let it go? Would just let it go? But pretend that you didn't hear it. Would kind of sit on the edge of your, of your seat on pins and needles, waiting for the chips to fall. Waiting for the news, okay? He did not do that. Um, someone confides in him. About, I would I'd take it this far. Remember, Mordecai is the one whose adoptive daughter was just taken into Xerxes' chamber, his bedroom. That ought to further incentivize someone to lock it up and throw away the key. I heard this. That would be excellent. Look at what he did here in this competition and with my adoptive daughter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this like a sweet chocolate, a morsel in the back of my tongue, and I'm going to savor it. Nobody can taste it but me right now, and I'm going to wait. So he's got a decision to make. Is he going to do a good thing for a bad guy? Is he going to say something? Or is he going to spare his own life? Verse 22. He told it to Queen Esther, his adoptive daughter. He'd raised her, and now he tells her, and then she tells the king, and the king says, where did you learn this? And she says, well, from my cousin Mordecai. And then there's this big investigation. Uh, and after research, they discover that indeed there is this treasonous plot. And then we read this. So the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So they have, for all intents and purposes, a congressional hearing. And they study it. And then a report is generated on the hearing to King Xerxes in his presence. These were official court documents. And it says, hey, here's the plot. Here's the documentation. Here's the witnesses. Here's the evidence. At last, here's the cash payoff. And, O oh, King, Mordecai was the one that saved your life. And the two men who plotted it, they hung likely from a simple tree. So what do you think happens to Mordecai? The seemingly new hero of the story. Shouldn't he get some kind of prize? 
maybe um, a lifetime of butter burgers or something like that. Cheese, the works. Here's what Xerxes does. Nothing. To our knowledge, he rewards Mordecai in no shape or form. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And after these things, it's about five years later, King Ahasuerus promoted, and we're sitting there waiting. Will it be Mordecai? He deserves it. Is it? Isn't it? Haman the Agagite. And we're thinking, Haman the Agagite? How could he promote Haman the Agagite? How many of you guys have this kind of boss? Don't raise your hands. You save his life, and he demotes you. This is what's going on here, in effect. And you know he's going to be a bad guy because his name even sounds bad, doesn't it? Haman the Agagite. I mean, it just doesn't have a good ring to it. And advanced him and set his throne. He even got a throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, what you may not know is that in the Old Testament, when God formed the nation of Israel, the first nation to attack the Jewish people was that of the Agagites. So Mordecai's taken this quite personally. This is the nation that was the first to attack our borders. This is the nation that sought to rape our women and to pillage our national treasury. And here sits the little king. And here sits Mordecai now underneath him as a government official and as a citizen of Persia. Verse 2 of chapter 3. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down. This is getting so juicy. Are you ready for this? Mordecai stands up when everybody else bows. You ever heard of the stink eye? And just gives him on the stink eye. The smolder. And everyone else is shocked that he hasn't submitted. He hasn't acquiesced. He hasn't acknowledged Haman's new authority. He understands that he's opposing him, and publicly so, that he's ridiculing Haman, that Haman is being defied. And some of us who say that wasn't a wise move on your part, Mordecai, and as we'll soon learn, that's true. It was not. And bowing in this day wasn't, we can't think of it like we do uh, the Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace who did not bow out of uh, spiritual or religious devotion. This is more like an Asian culture kind of of bow to a political figure in respect. But he's not even doing that. In other words, it's not a a God-fearing thing, like it's not an idol, uh, aversion kind of thing. It's, it's a personal matter between he and this man. So what's Haman going to do? What do you do if you're the boss? What do you do when Mordecai's become a rock in your shoe? He starts going nuts. 
he starts flipping out. He starts getting a little loony. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? So notice who the charge, what the new charge is. Not only have you failed to revere the new uh, piece of authority that we put in place, but you're failing to revere who? King Xerxes, the highest self-esteem guy, the self-described king of all kings. And verse 4 tells us they spoke to him daily to bow. So he was repeating this posture, this refusal. Day after day, he held his ground. And then ironically, he see, Mordecai is like you love him, you hate him. That's the kind of relationship. He blames his refusal to kneel on his religious convictions. He pulls out the fact that he's a Jew all of a sudden because in this moment, it might benefit him. He says, wait, I'm Jewish, wait. I haven't told you that the last 40 years. We've been rubbing shoulders, but I want to do so now. I'm, I'm Jewish, I am. See, he had not been loving the God of the Bible. He had not been praying that we have evidence of or giving tithe or singing a song. And when he's in trouble, he tries to use faith as this get-out-of-jail-free card. I can't do that. I'm Jewish. How many of you know somebody like this? They're perhaps a drunk and maybe a thief, but then when their friends want them to do something else terrible, they're like, I can't, man. I can't. I'm a Christian. <laughs> and it's inconsistent. And you're like, wait a minute, what? Like, what I'm encouraging you not to do is, is to be the person that keeps your faith a private matter until the point that it benefits you. Don't pull out the Christian card only when it's convenient to do so. Amen? Pull it out all the time, even when it's inconvenient. Verses 5 and 6. And when Amon saw that Mordecai did not bow, and let me just say this. How many of you are like Haman? One person doesn't bow to you in this life, and you just can't let it go. You just can't get over it. You have a throne for crying out loud. You have a business. You have a family that loves you. You have so many friends. You have recreation that you enjoy. But that one person who refuses to give you the respect that you think you deserve. I mean, Haman's life is going great. And yet he's obsessed with this one guy who doesn't bow. That's what frustrates him. And the text tells us he becomes filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Alone is the key word. Here's his thinking. I want to kill that guy, but I don't want to do it with my own hands. I've got to get somebody else involved. This is a typical passive-aggressive leader. 
I don't like them. I don't want to talk to them. I just talk about them. Instead of meeting and addressing conflict, I'm just going to go over here and meet somebody else. And instead of taking my criticism to the person, I'm going to take it here because it's easier and it's cowardly. I think I'll delegate the resolution of this conflict, says Haman. It would have gone a lot better for him in the end if he'd had the courage to walk up to Mordecai and say, let's sit down and talk. I've got something that's been bothering me. I don't want to let it fester for years. I don't want to let this go on for months and months and months and months. I don't want to harbor resentment. Can we just please talk? Can we get together? Church family, we have to be very careful that when someone offends us, we choose to deal with them instead of plotting against them. Amen? Here's where we discover the level of darkness in Haman's heart. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy, and this is just, we gasp, all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Rather than having a conversation, Haman results to genocide. That's his plausible solution to deal with one man. And we've said from the beginning that the names change, but the human hearts do not. In the first service, I reminded the church, um, that there was another leader whose name began with an H many years later who sought the same end. What was his name? Adolf Hitler. And my wife reminded me about uh, just following the first service, hey, there's another H, Herod. Wanted to do the same thing. Kill the people of God. Wipe them off the planet. This is what Haman, because he he harbors resentment and unforgiveness in his heart, results to. It ought to horrify us that a government thinks it okay to wipe out, to execute a nation or a people group of innocents. How many of you know, too, that America, we cannot look at Haman and look at Hitler and look at Herod and put ourselves on a moral high ground because not all of us, but as a nation, we have made it legal in the 1970s to murder unborn children. 
Its legality does not make it holy. And if we're going to condemn, as the people of God, holocausts, we should condemn all of them. Amen. It's interesting that on this day, um, this Jewish holiday, the Feast of Purim, the Jews read this story in 2018. And the name Haman is jeered at and hissed at. Isn't that something? Here's a man who lived during the reign of King Xerxes. And because a conversation was unwilling to be had, Jews in 2018 sit around and despise his character. And again, if we're religious, we come down and say, he's a terrible man. Thank you, Lord, that I'm better than he. Or, or, or we can be open to a very difficult question that I'm going to ask you in conclusion. Maybe the toughest one I've ever asked. And it's purely hypothetical. Everybody say that with me. This is purely hypothetical. Who would you kill if you could get away with it? If it were legal, if it was within your power, your jurisdiction, if it were sanctioned, if you didn't have to worry about an investigation, a council, an arraignment, a hearing, if you could just do it. If it's a person next to you, make sure you don't give that away by any body language or anything like that, okay? But sincerely, if I came to you and said, you know, Dennis, the Lord gave me authority, I had a dream, and he told me that you can whack somebody. Anybody. Here's a card I printed off. It's got a blank on it. Fill in anybody's name, Dennis, you want to fill in. And the sovereign one has given you authorization to do this. Who would you whack, Dennis? You don't have to tell me publicly. Of course we would never endorse such a thing. Ever. But here's the big point. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that murder and hatred are on the same highway. We arrive at hatred first. Its exit is sooner. But the exit for murder comes much farther down the exact same road. When we hate someone, when we hate Someone, we commit murder against them, not with our hands, but in our hearts. 
just because we can't murder legally by extending our hands does not make it okay or pure or justifiable to live in our heart. So this is what I want to plead you with you to do as a last not a last ditch effort i'll do this again and again and again but as a last one probably for some while because we just come across this stuff in the text and we talk about it go to the person and have a talk in jesus name don't hold on to it ask the holy spirit to be with you Ask that it be marked by gentleness and understanding and patience and love and truthfulness and yet poignance. But have the talk. We are so proper that we think we cannot thrive in between doing nothing and all hell breaking loose. The gospel is in the middle. It's confronting it, but doing it gently and in a way that would please the Father. And if we've done that and it still doesn't work, and I've had situations like that, then you'll have been obedient to Jesus. Amen? And then you stop trying. And then you're out from under it. And you're free of it. And I'm free of it in Jesus' name. And you are too if you have the talk. Muster the courage. Have the talk in the name of Jesus. Amen? All right. Thanks for letting me yell at you this morning. I just love doing that. (laughs) Father, we just pray, Lord, that you will uh, bless our church. We just ask, God, that you would continue to lay your hand of protection and faithfulness on this beautiful people group in central Wisconsin. I pray, Lord, that you would assist us. Lord, nothing has become clearer to me in this initiative than that it's up to you this project is up to you we cannot take any ounce of credit lord if it happens it is your doing your grace your miracle and so we come to you again lord and we say it's yours we trust you We feel like you've given us a dream to reach this community, and we're asking you to fulfill it in Jesus' name. Amen.